0: Genesis chapter 50, have you ever uh, had that feeling of accomplishment, you finally finish something, something difficult that you set out to do, Um, in, in many ways I kind of feel that way, I feel like the three of us are a little giddy I think this evening because we're finally out of Genesis, almost, almost there. Um it's been, it's been a long year and a half. Um, sometimes it feels longer than a year and a half. It's, I looked it up. It's, uh, it was April of 2019 that we started this journey, so a little over a year and a half. Um, but it's been, it's been a good journey. It's been something that I feel like has stretched us uh, as teachers and preachers of the Word. I feel like it's something that has stretched us as the body of Christ and understanding how do, we, how do we take the Old Testament How do we use the Old Testament as a New Testament church, as the body of Christ? How do we look at the Old Testament and and allow it to speak into our lives when so much of that, in many ways, we look at as kind of unnecessary or or not relevant uh, to today? Yet I hope as we've gone through these, uh, these many weeks of Genesis, I hope that you have seen that the same God of Genesis... Is the same God that we worship today, and everything that He did way back then is absolutely relevant to us this evening, and this week, and this month, and this year, and in the years to come, because He is eternal. As we come to the Book of Genesis, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to look back and and uh, try to remember some of the things that we've that we've looked at along this uh, this interesting journey. There's some there's been some passages that. Um, have been hard and difficult to, to work through. There's been some passages that um, maybe we didn't really want to go through because of the subject matter. There's, there's, there's lots of things in Genesis that we could look back on. Um, and I hope that as you look back, it's been a fruitful journey for you. I hope it's been something that, that has allowed you to learn, to grow, that you've been stretched. Um, I hope it's not just um, another sermon series that we went through, but I hope that it's something that has had an impact on your life spiritually. We've seen a lot of things in the book of Genesis. We've seen um, God as the creator of all. Back in Genesis chapter 1. I'm, don't worry, I'm not going to hit everything. <laughs> but we've seen, we've seen God as the creator of all. The, the supreme and only being. The one who spoke everything into existence. Everything that we see. Everything, every one that we see. Has come about By the word of his mouth. And the power that is there. We've seen God interact with man. In fellowship in the garden. We've seen God take on this. Failure of man. When they fell. And we've seen God have a plan. To redeem. These people. Way back at the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3. We've seen him. Take care of and, and, and even though there was judgment upon man, he still cared for them. And he, and he put up with more and more and more sin until, of course, we get to a time when judgment had to come. Judgment had to be made on all men because they were all seeking after their own way, following after everything that was evil. And so God chose to destroy everything through a flood. But yet his perfect plan of redemption remained true as he chose a man, eight people and a family to carry on the human race. We've seen him deal with man's pride over and over and over in the book of Genesis. We've seen him uh, scatter the nations abroad, which is what he desired at the Tower of Babel when they, they looked to raise themselves up. He, he confused their languages and scattered them. We've seen him choose a man to be the one through whom the promised Savior would eventually come, who had no qualifications for this task. We've seen him choose a man and just stick with him through thick and thin, through failure after failure after failure, because that was his plan. That was his purpose. And we've seen him do that from generation to generation to generation. Choosing these men with zero qualification to be the ones through whom the, the promised Messiah would come. We've seen God do a lot of amazing things. He's, we've seen him keep promises. We've seen him... Uh, past judgment, we've seen him save and protect people in spite of themselves. We've seen many things about God in this journey through Genesis. But we've often often referenced a very familiar characteristic of God as we've looked at all these uh, things and and more in the book of Genesis, and this evening we're going to once again lean very heavily on this truth. You all probably know exactly what truth I'm talking about. Um, Has it not been a a necessary and appropriate truth for these days? Have we found? Have we not found peace and rest in being reminded that, in spite of all that is around us, God is still sovereign? You know, when we started this journey through Genesis, we didn't sit down and say, "Guys, this is the deal. We got to hammer home." the sovereignty of God over the next year and a half. We didn't do that. But it's been amazing as God has led us through the book of Genesis over and over and over and over again. He brings about the reality of his sovereignty. We understand this truth and have heard this truth over and over and over for a year and a half. So you know it well. However, my question for you this evening is, do you really believe it? We've talked about the sovereignty of God. We've proclaimed the sovereignty of God. But my question for you this evening is, do you really believe in the sovereignty of God? Joseph did. When we read the life of Joseph, we see a man who, by confession of his mouth and by the actions of his being, believed wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God. As we look at this passage this evening, this last passage in Genesis, we're going to see once again the response of a man who fully understood and fully embraced the sovereignty of God in his life. We've looked at all the things that God allowed in Joseph's life, the heartaches, the pain, the suffering, and yet we see him simply point back to God over and over and over as the one who's in control. As we come to the last chapter, we see these final words and actions of Joseph. No doubt as we look back on our time in this book, Joseph has reminded us all, that God, of, all of, that, of all that God has done. I believe that Joseph in this last chapter is understanding and more importantly his full acceptance of God's sovereignty in his life is leading him to respond in three very specific ways in this final chapter. The title of the message this evening is Evidences of Faith in a Sovereign God. Evidences of Faith in a Sovereign God. And since Andy already preached my message for me, you already know the points. But we'll go through them anyway. Evidences of Faith in a Sovereign God. The big idea this evening is... That when we truly understand and believe that God is sovereign, it will change the way we respond to the circumstances he ordains and the people he brings across our path. One more time. When we truly understand and believe that God is sovereign, it will change the way we respond to the circumstances he ordains and the people he brings across our path. As we've looked at, we've read through this passage already. I'll try not to read a whole lot of it as we go for sake of time. But we see Joseph here. Jacob has died and Jacob has asked him, take me back to my homeland. Have me buried with my fathers. He's made this request of Joseph. And of course, we know Moses didn't put chapter headings in the, in the, uh, in, in the book of Genesis. It was just one long uh, book here. So this really just kind of flows together. But we're going to go by chapter. So Joseph here, it's, it's come to the point where Jacob has died. What he has asked now needs to happen. And the first thing that I, that, I want, that I want us to see from the life of Joseph, from the life of a man who clearly believes in the sovereignty of God. The first point that I want to see is that faith in a sovereign God produces faithfulness. Another way of saying that is that faith in a sovereign God produces obedience. See, Joseph, I'm probably going to mix that up a lot. Joseph believed that God was sovereign, believed that God had a plan and a purpose for everything that was going on. And it caused him to be a man who was faithful to everything that he knew he should do. Have we not seen that in the life of Joseph? We've seen him be a faithful servant as God blessed him in the the house of Potiphar. We've seen him be faithful to God's law in, in, which hadn't actually been written yet, but what he knew God desired for him to not uh, have a relationship with Potiphar's wife. We've seen him denied the temptation. We've seen him be the, the the perfect, the servant that everybody would want. Potiphar loved him. The the, the Philippian jailer, wow. The jailer <laughs> loved him, you know. We're going to the New Testament. Yeah. Um, he was, he was the ideal servant. And yet all these things happened to him. And he could have easily just given up and said, it's not worth it. I might as well just be like these other bums over here. But he didn't. He remained faithful to, the, be, to, to be the person that he knew God wanted him to be. And he was faithful because he believed in a sovereign God. And he, even here at the end of his father's life, we see his faithfulness. But we see, I see his faithfulness in two different ways. The first one's pretty obvious. Who is Joseph faithful to in this passage? Anybody? Jacob. To Jacob, right? His father. He's faithful to the promise that he had made. Good job, son. You get a start. Um, he, he's faithful to do what he had promised he would do. They're, they're living in the land of Egypt. There's plenty of places that he could bury Jacob in the land of Egypt. Um, In fact, they even have a really good process of embalming in the land of Egypt. And he actually begins to go through that process, even though he knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to take his father back. He begins the process that is normal for the custom of the land that he is in to have his father embalmed. And it takes 40 days to embalm him. And then there's another 30 days even after that. So they they kind of wait 70 days before they leave, and, and you have to wonder if, if maybe, you know, I, I don't know anything about Joseph's wife. The scripture doesn't really tell us a whole lot, but you've got to wonder if Joseph's wife wasn't just like, he's, he's dead. Just Can we just bury him here instead of going all the way, taking a trip all the way up there? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Maybe she said that. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she was just a... A faithful wife. We don't don't really know anything about her. But I can imagine it would have been much easier to just bury his father right there. After all, everything that they had was there. Everyone in the family was there. They had nothing back in the land of Canaan except this burial ground. But yet Joseph is faithful to what his father has asked him to do. He's faithful to complete it. He doesn't go halfway. You don't see him uh, just run up real quick, you know, make a quick trip up to Canaan and dump his body in the grave and, you know, come back down. We see a process of honor for his father that he makes. And at the end of the chapter, obviously, we see he and and his brothers. It seems like pretty much the immediate family is what went because it says the children stayed home. Obviously, at this point, the children are are not, you know, 12 and 13. (laughs) They're probably full grown people at this point, but the brothers and, and Joseph they go up and, and they go up with a whole band of Egyptians to where did you notice when when the Canaanites looked at this group, who did they think it was? The Egyptians, the Egyptians right they just saw all these Egyptians coming and and, and they named the land the, the morning of the Egyptians right this is, it was that was what they saw with all these Egyptians. just think of the honor that was given to Jacob and Joseph I mean, when we look at it, at it in terms of, you know, ourselves, do we, do we fulfill the, the things that we say we're going to do? The way we say we're going to do them? Would we have gone the extra mile? I don't think this thing's working, so I'm just going to put it down. Maybe. hello, There we go. Would we have gone the extra mile? Would we have done exactly what he, what he would have desired for us? to do how often do we cut corners in life have you ever cut corners we say we're going to do one thing and we just you know we just try to do the bare minimum we make a promise that we're going to get something done but man we just do just exactly what meets the requirements we're not going the extra mile joseph went the extra mile Joseph honored his father. He was faithful to do what his father desired him to do. Because he understood that God had a plan. God had a purpose. As you read later on, you you see that Joseph's the one, and we'll get to this in a minute, Joseph's the one reminding his brothers that God has still promised that land in Canaan to them. So he understands, he has has a, a vision For what God has promised for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. And he is going to be faithful to do what God desires. God desired for Jacob to be in that land. That's why he allowed them to have that burial place. Where Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob would be laid to rest. Though they did not inherit the land in life, they do in death. And so God has a plan, and Joseph, understanding the sovereign plan of God, is faithful to the fullest. Faithful as far as he can to his father, to honor his memory, to do everything he can to do what what Jacob has asked for him to do. But not only is Joseph faithful to his father, he's faithful to someone else. Anybody have an idea? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you're going, where are you getting this from, David? (laughs) All right, bear with me. He's faithful to Pharaoh. How do I see that? I don't have this thing so I can walk up here. What does he do? He starts this process, right? He starts this process of of the uh, embalming and everything's getting ready. Everything's ready to go. And what does he do? He talks to Pharaoh's house. And he asks for permission to leave. He asks if it's okay if he can go up and do what what his father has asked him to do. He's faithful to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, of course, is is gracious and grants him the opportunity. I mean. I don't know what you wouldn't do for the guy that basically saved the entire world <laughs> from famine. But, uh, but Pharaoh is very gracious in allowing him to, to go with his family and even probably is the one that you know instigated all these people going with him to make sure that he had the support and the help and everything that he needed to get up there to Canaan and to come back. But it's not just the fact that Joseph asked for permission to leave that I see his faithfulness. For me, it's also the fact that he came back. He came back. See, Joseph understood that God had put him in that place for that time, as far as he knew, for his life to serve Pharaoh. And he was faithful in every respect. Remember a few weeks ago, we we looked at that. Uh, that, back and, that, that back and forth that negotiation process that, that J- Joseph made on behalf of Pharaoh with the people of Egypt. He understood that God put him in that position to be a servant of Pharaoh and there was nothing that God had done to diminish that role in his life. And so we see these people going up to the land of, of Canaan but then doing everything that they're supposed to do for, Je- for Jacob, but then coming back down. They intended to come back down, they planned to come back down. If you don't think they had enough time to get everything together and go, read in the book of Exodus. All right? How long did it take the nation of Israel to get ready to leave Egypt? A few days. A few days. <laughs> They were ready, man. They were eating the Passover, standing up. They were ready to walk out the door in just a few days. They had 70 days to get ready with a whole lot fewer people. If they wanted to leave and they wanted to go up back to the land of Canaan, if they wanted to take things in their hands, the promises of God in their hands, they could have tried it. They could have said nothing to Pharaoh, gather everybody together, Let's go. We're going back to Canaan. The famine's done. Everyone's good. We've been, you know, prospering here. Let's go back to the land that God has promised us. I don't know about you, but I would be tempted to do that. I mean, from what I can tell, everything that God has desired for me to accomplish here in in Egypt is done. Let's go back. Didn't God promise it to us? Let's go back. I don't know how much of these uh, stories in Genesis were passed on. Uh, The Bible isn't clear. We know that a lot of what what Moses wrote in Genesis was given to him by God on Mount Sinai. Uh, So we don't know exactly what Joseph knew, what Joseph remembered. But you got to wonder if any of the things that were promised to Abraham had been passed down to Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph. You got to wonder if maybe Joseph didn't somehow understand that when God promised to Abraham way back in chapter 15 that your family, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that they don't know. That they will be slaves there for 400 years. I don't know if Joseph remembered that or not. We don't even know if Joseph knew it. But he understood somehow that God's design and desire for him regardless of how well everything looked, was for him to stay in Egypt, was for his family to stay in Egypt. And so they did it purposefully. They honored their father by going back and taking his body back to the land of Canaan, but they did it in a way that honored Pharaoh by leaving the rest of the family there as a sign that they were going to come back. And then by coming back. Because Joseph understood that God had a purpose and a plan for him in Egypt. Even though we look at it and we, and we say, this is chapter 50, man. He dies in chapter 50. It's all over. I, I don't know what he's looking forward to. doesn't matter. He knew that that's where God wanted him. And he was faithful to both his father and his master. You know, I think a lot of times we forget that Joseph really technically is still a slave. He's still a servant of Pharaoh, even though he's been placed as second in command. He's still under the authority of Pharaoh. And so even though he has this great power, he technically is still under an earthly master. See, when we truly believe in God's sovereignty, we can remain faithful and obedient to both God and man because we understand God has ordained those circumstances in our lives. When we really understand God's sovereignty, when we really believe it, we can be faithful to God and man because we understand God's ordained it. Not only was Joseph faithful, but he was forgiving. Point number two, we see faith in a sovereign God produces forgiveness. As Joseph and his brothers come back, we see this other interaction, right? We see his brothers now realize that in their minds, their protector is gone. Can you kind of see that? That's, that's the idea I get from these guys as they're looking around. They see that Jacob is gone. Their father is gone, the one who probably was that barrier between them and Joseph's wrath for all the things that they did to him. He's gone. And fear enters their heart. And it's interesting. I mean. What else would we have in chapter 50 of Genesis. Than another scheme. Right. I mean we've been seeing schemes. All the way through the book of Genesis. Um, Why not one more in in the chapter 50. So we see this scheme by these brothers. And they come up with this idea. We're going to send this message to Joseph. Now. You can decide whether you, whether you think this is a lie or whether it did happen to be something that Jacob said. It's not recorded in scripture. So we don't know for sure if this was actually something Joseph said. Based on the way that these guys are responding, my guess is most likely it's a lie. <laughs> most likely it's this, just them trying to manipulate the situation because they're afraid. They're scared. And they're trying to do everything they can to manipulate this situation so that they... Are okay, So that everything that they know they deserve doesn't come back on them. And they're trying to manipulate things. We see them send this message off to Joseph that says, Your father said, because you know, they, know, they know he's faithful. They know he's faithful to what his father's asked. So they said, Your father said before he died that, you know, don't take it out on us. Don't take it out us. This is your father's wish, right? And then when they come before him, what do they do? You know, they're, they're trying to placate and they're bowing down. We are your servants. You know, they're, they're just trying to manipulate Joseph to, to get rid of their own fear. And the, the funny thing is, what Joseph says here, he said before, has he not? He's already told them his perspective on this situation. He's already told him that he understands that God is the one that was working in all these different things. And yet they are so consumed by their own fear and probably their own guilt that they have ignored that and they're trying to manipulate Joseph into making everything okay. But how does Joseph respond? I think it's interesting how Joseph responds here. It says here in verse 17. This message is is brought to Joseph, and and it says after this message, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. See, Joseph understood that God had a plan. And he's tried to communicate that God has a plan in the past, and he realizes they're just not getting it. And for them to bring this back up is just something that tears his heart open. And he weeps that they would think that because dad's gone, now I'm going to get what's mine. And he weeps. I just found that interesting. The, the level of love and compassion. Even though I'm sure he probably can see exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows that they're trying to manipulate him. To make sure that he's not going to do anything to him, And he weeps because... That's not his heart. And and they don't understand that. Joseph weeps at the accusation that he would go back on his word, that he would now take justice upon his brothers. Not only does he weep, but what does he do? He points them where? He points them back to God. He points them back to God's plan. He points them back and he says, God is the one who did this. Yes, yes, it is true. You should be guilty. It is true. You meant it for evil. But guys, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And no, it didn't feel like good when I was... Probably walking in a chain gang as a slave down to Egypt. No, it didn't feel good when I got put into this man's house and had to do all these tasks that I didn't have to do before when I was dad's favorite. No, it probably didn't feel good when that woman lied about me and I got stuck in prison. No, it didn't feel good when that man forgot about me after, after I told him what the interpretation of his dream was and I got to spend two more years down there. No, it didn't feel good. But God meant it for good. It's okay. Because there is a sovereign plan. and has nothing to do with what I think or what I feel. It has everything to do with God, what God desires. God had a plan. He meant it for good. He meant it for the good to save much people. I can just see Joseph just looking around at his brothers and just saying, Look, look at all these people that would not be here if God had not allowed you to do what you did. But he doesn't just point to God, he gives him a promise. What does he say in verse 19? But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Don't be afraid, guys. You have nothing to fear. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Jump down to verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. How does he respond here? with full knowledge and understanding that God's sovereignty brought him to this place, he points them back to that, but then he even goes a step further. He doesn't just say, it's all right, it's no big deal, don't worry about it. What does he do? He says, don't worry, because I'm on top of that. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm not just going to let it go. I'm going to take the next step and I'm going to take care of you. You mean, horrible people who hated me, hated me enough to kill me, but settled for slavery. I'm going to take care of you because that's what God desires. It's interesting, he says, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but forgiveness is a very difficult thing. I don't think any of us probably have dealt with nearly the, uh, the type of wrongs that were put on Joseph. but yet he forgave. He didn't just forgive because he was a good guy. He forgave because he understood God's plan. He forgave because he understood that God was the one working. Is that how we approach forgiveness? Do we forgive people just because it's the right thing to do? But in our heart, maybe are we saying the words of forgiveness, but in our heart, are we really holding something back and saying, but man, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to be able to fellowship with you the same way again. I'm never going to be able to trust you the same way again. Is that how we forgive? Or do we forgive in a way that is lavish, that is comforting, that is kind? Is that how we forgive? Is that not how Christ forgave us? And yet we think that we have the right to hold something over somebody else. When all along, no matter what they did, God meant it for good. You ever thought about it that way? Every every wrong that someone has done to you, real or imagined, God allowed. Not only did God allow, God ordained it. He made sure that it would happen. You know, we we don't look at those things in life like that. We just look at those things as That person failed. And that's true. That person failed. Those brothers failed. They were wrong. But God meant it for good. Joseph, at the end of his life, has an understanding of what God was doing when he allowed those things to happen. We don't always. We can't always see especially when things are happening at that time what God is doing. And sometimes even many years down the road we may not be able to see exactly what God is doing but someday when we get to heaven we will know exactly what God was doing by allowing all those hurts and all those harms and all those words and actions that were done against us. But the question to us is going to be did you trust me? And forgive? Or did you get bitter? Did you get angry? Did you allow it to to break a relationship that could have been saved? Did you allow it to make you someone that others couldn't be around because that's all that you thought about. That's all you were consumed by. Joseph was a man of forgiveness because he was a man that understood that God was doing it for good. Yes, man does evil and wicked things, but God is ordaining it for our good. When we truly believe in God's sovereignty, we can readily forgive others because we understand God has ordained that relationship in our lives. Have you thought about that? We can readily forgive if we really believe that God is sovereign, because we understand that he has ordained that person in our life. Is that how you view the people around you? Lastly, as we look at this passage, the third point is that, we, is that faith in a sovereign God produces future hope. Faith in a sovereign God produces future hope. I needed another F. So that's what we went with. How does this passage end? This passage ends with some time passing, obviously from when Jacob dies to when Joseph dies. We don't get any interim information about Joseph. Nothing else is said about him and and what goes on in his life. But we have basically now the end of Joseph's life. Probably have something titled above it. It says the death of Joseph. So we have just a few verses here at the end of this very long book of a man who, because he believes in the sovereignty of God, he trusts the promises of God. He now has something to look forward to, even on his deathbed. Even on his deathbed, he has something to look forward to. What does he say? Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw his grandchildren. Verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But what does he do? What does he do as he comes to his deathbed? What does he say to them? He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. What does he do? He reminds his brothers that God will one day lead them out of this land. Now, I think there's a couple things that you could maybe a couple ways you could look at this. Cuz he reminds them that God's going to lead them out of this land and he reminds them where they're going. Right? He says God's going to visit you and he's going to take you back to the land that he promised. He promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All three of them got the promise verbally from God that this land of Canaan will be for you and your descendants. I can't help but wonder if maybe Joseph saw that his brothers were kind of getting used to life in Egypt. I don't know. This is just conjecture. Take it for take it with a grain of salt. But I can't help but wonder if at the end of his life, if, if he sees his brothers and he sees everything that's, you know, their, their wealth is amassing, their herds are, herds are amassing, they've, they've got the choicest land in Egypt. I mean, it'd be a pretty good place to settle, would it not? I mean, yeah, Canaan's great and all, but look at what we got. And I can't help but wonder if maybe Joseph's Joseph's reminder here is, is partially an admonition that there's something better. There's something better that God has promised to us. And he is going to bring you back. He is going to bring you back. And in fact, it's going to be a land of blessing that's greater than what you know now. The promise that God has made, he's going to fulfill. How could Joseph say that? He's about to die. He could say that because over and over and over and again in his life, he saw God sovereignly work out his plan. He saw God be faithful to the promises that he had made. He knows that God is who he claims to be. And he can, at the end of his life, say to his brothers, God is going to come back and bring you out. He's going to do it. Count on it. And he almost doubles down on his hope here. Because he knows he's not going to be around to see it. So what does he say to him? He says, and when he dies, what does he want them to do? Anybody? Take my bones. I know I'm going to be gone. I ain't going to see this. But I know it's going to happen because God has promised it's going going to happen. And he is faithful to fulfill his promises So you can live out your days in hope. Because what God promises, he will do. And I believe it so much. I want you to promise me, swear to me, that you will take whatever's left with you back to the land of Canaan. And if you read the book of Exodus, you'll find out they did. They did just that 400 years later took his bones back to the land of Canaan. Joseph had hope in a future that he knew he wouldn't really be a part of because he understood the sovereignty of God. He understood that God would fulfill the promises that he had given. Do we look forward with hope Yes, I know theologically we look forward with hope, right? We can all fill out a, a theological essay on um, what's going to happen, at least in some degree. You know, we can all understand that one day we are going to live with Christ eternally if we have accepted Him as our Savior. We can look forward in hope theologically, but today when you are at home, When you are going about this crazy, messed up world, did you have that hope? Were you resting in that hope? Or were you so concerned about all the junk going on in society, all the things that you don't like? Are you just so concerned with everything going on that you fail to see the sovereignty of God and rest in the hope that we have in Christ? Faith in the sovereignty of God produces future hope regardless of the circumstances. When we truly believe in God's sovereignty, we can look forward with hope because we understand God is faithful and will fulfill all he has promised. We can look forward in hope. We've been reminded over and over and over and over about the sovereignty of God in the book of Genesis. We've been reminded constantly that he is sovereign over all people and all things at all times. And this can be a very comforting truth when we enter times of change and uncertainty and undesirable circumstances. But I wonder, do you really believe in God's sovereignty? Or is it just a platitude that makes you feel good about situations you can't control? Is it a truth that drives obedience or just a hope that things will turn out the way you want them to in the end? Is your faith in the sovereignty of God a magic rabbit's foot or humble submission to what he's doing? We often proclaim God's sovereignty yet fail to live as if that truth actually has any bearing on how we address the circumstances God has ordained. Here are just a few examples. If we choose to let the circumstances God sovereignly ordains become a source of continual complaining, we don't really believe in his sovereignty. Guilty. How often do we complain and grumble and moan about what God has clearly ordained for us in life. If we choose to let the circumstances God sovereignly ordains create division within the body of Christ, we don't really believe in his sovereignty. If we choose to let circumstances God sovereignly ordains keep us from living as Christ desires us to live, we don't really believe in his sovereignty. whether it's social distancing requirements or mask mandates or election results or sickness or job loss or loss of a loved one, whatever the circumstances you're facing, God has sovereignly ordained it. Do you understand those words? He has sovereignly ordained this for our good. Believing in the sovereignty of God is not just acknowledging that He's in control of everything, but it's also accepting that what He has ordained for us right now is absolutely right. Absolutely right. Regardless of how He chooses to bring it about. The question is not, do you believe in God's sovereignty intellectually, but rather, are you submitting to his sovereignly ordained circumstances by being an active participant in his plan? By that I mean, are you persevering in doing all that God has called you to do and be, all that God has called you to be, regardless of the hindrances, the discomforts, the heartaches, and even the persecution? James 1, verses 2 and 3 reminds us that God ordains these trials in our lives to produce steadfastness in our walk with Christ by testing our faith. What is our faith anchored in during these times of trial? It's anchored in the God that we believe in. It's anchored in the sovereignty of God. The Apostle Paul suffered greater harm and injustice than most of us ever will. Here are just a few examples of his perspective on suffering. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Paul states that we are to rejoice in our suffering because God is using it to grow our endurance, character, and hope. We're to rejoice in our suffering because that increases our hope if we respond correctly. Romans 8, 18. Paul says that his suffering is insignificant compared to the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. The suffering that we endure on earth is nothing compared to the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Are you looking forward to that? Is that what's driving you? Philippians one27 27 27-30, Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but reminds us that part of that calling... In fact, part of the privilege is to suffer for Christ. It's a privilege. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, Paul instructs us that God comforts us in affliction so that we can comfort others when the comfort, with the comfort He gives us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 17, Paul tells us that we suffer all manner of injustices so that we can show forth Christ. In both our life and our death. Is that how we go through suffering? With the goal of showing forth Christ? He then reminds us that even though our outward man is going through all these things. We can be renewed inwardly, spiritually, day by day. Because we don't focus on the outward. The temporary things. But rather on the spiritual and the eternal. There are many other encouraging passages in James and 1 Peter and other places I don't want to take up a lot of time. But over and over you see this idea that we are to rejoice and be glad in suffering while obeying Christ. It's something to glory in, not grumble over. Can you imagine seeing the apostles in Acts chapter 5? They've been dragged in before the religious leaders. They've been beaten. They've been told over and over and over again, don't preach in the name of Jesus. And of course, that's in direct conflict with something that Christ commanded them to do. And so they're going to obey Christ. And so they drag them in and they beat them. And there's this whole passage and they realize they can't really do a whole lot else. So they... Send them on their way. And I encourage you to read that passage. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 40. Because, in fact, let's just go there. Acts chapter 5. Verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Listen to these words. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy. Worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Is that how we respond? Do we count it worthy? Do we rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for Christ? Let's be honest. How much are we actually suffering for Christ? Anybody get dragged in and beat today because they were preaching the gospel? We really suffering for Christ. They were. And they rejoiced They were counted worthy. I wonder how many of us would be counted worthy of suffering. Or does maybe God know we couldn't handle it? This attitude of continual obedience and rejoicing in the opportunity to suffer for Christ is the response of those who truly understand and embrace the sovereignty of God. Our big idea again was that when we truly understand and believe that God is sovereign, it will change the way we respond to the circumstances He ordains and the people He brings across our path. May God grant us faith to fully embrace His sovereignty as Joseph did, not just in words and platitudes, but in action, not just theologically. But practically, day in and day out, do you really believe in the sovereignty of God? Father, we thank you that regardless of whether we believe it or not, you are sovereign. You are in control and you are doing your will. You are working out your plan. You are doing everything for your glory. But along with that, Lord, you are doing it for our good as well, and so we thank you. And Father, even though many times we do not understand why you allow things to happen in our lives that we don't like, why you allow things to happen in our lives that bring pain, that bring suffering, that bring heartache, God, you, you do it because you love us. And Lord, it's so hard for us to understand that. Because we go through the pain and the discomfort and the heartache. And even as believers, Lord, sometimes we lift up our hands and we ask why. God, I pray that you would give us faith like Joseph. Help us to truly believe that you are sovereign and let that belief change the way that we respond. Help us to be a light in this dark world not because we're the loudest but because we simply understand that you are working things out and all you ask us to do is be faithful. Help us to be faithful, Lord. May you receive glory from our lives. May you receive glory from this church. May we go out from this building or another building. May we go out from life groups. May we go out from time together one-on-one. However you allow us together to gather together, Lord, you've promised that you're with us. Where two or three are gathered in your name, Lord, help us to go out from those times and reach a world that is lost a world that is dying. Help us not to get wrapped up in the things that we don't like. Help us to get wrapped up in what you are doing. And help us to be faithful to be a part of it. We love you because you first loved us. I pray that you would help us to love you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.